You're listening to the Hiccups and History podcast, hosted by a very tired college student. This episode was mastered by Trey DeFalco. <coughs> you find yourself walking the moors of 16th century Europe. A mist blankets the ground and sends a cold shiver up your legs as you walk. The moon occasionally breaks through the cloud cover and cascades silver light over the land around you. These few brief moments of light and comfort soon begin to fade away as the night grows on and clouds soon completely blot out the moon. You stumble in near pitch black darkness until you reach the edge of the forest. An unease begins to creep over you. You feel as though you are not alone, as though you are being watched. Suddenly, the full moon breaks through the clouds and bathes the moors with light. The comfort you would normally feel with the ability to see is quickly shattered as a long, foreboding howl echoes across the moors and straight through your very soul. You turn to see where it came from and see a figure in the distance. Too far to see properly. Is it on two legs or four? Is that fur or hair? As the clouds begin to slowly cover the moon once more, you hear another blood-chilling howl and see the figure begin to move then darkness, then you run. This short story that I just told you is a work of complete fiction I came up with in my mind when trying to put myself into the mindset of a person during the 16th century, a mindset which could conceive of the idea of a werewolf, a mind which has centuries of lore and fear to call upon when shadows move, moons rise, and wolves prowl the night. I wish now to plunge into the depths of history to find the origins of the werewolf and trace the lore and perceptions of them through the years till we reach the 16th century and the witch hunts and wolf trials which dominated the early modern age of Europe. The idea of a person changing into another creature is an old one. Most gods of the ancient world had some ability to shapeshift, Many magic users in myth, like the sorceress Circe from the Odyssey, were able to change people into animals by force. Though the idea is present in most classical civilizations like Egyptians, Jews, Persians, the Greeks had the most well-known and influential myths involving shape-changing. This is particularly important because the Greeks influenced the Romans, and the Romans influenced most of Europe, especially those in the early modern era. In ancient Greek myth, the changing of one's shape between human and animal always involves some form of divine force or magic, and many times the people being changed into animals were doing so against their will. Examples being Odysseus' crew on the island of Circe, Io at the hands of Zeus, and Atalanta and Hippomenes at the hands of Zeus again, or possibly Rhea depending on the version of the myth. In all of these cases, the people were turned into all kinds of creatures. Lions, pigs, cows. Nothing to do with wolves or the wearing of them. That is, until the myth of Lycaon. The myth of Lycaon brings to the lore of werewolves several key factors. The first, and most obvious, 
is the quote-unquote scientific name we use for the condition of being a werewolf or were-person in general, that being lycanthropy. The second key factor is their connection to cannibalism. In the myth of Lycaon, Lycaon tries to test the omniscience of Zeus and kills and cooks his son and attempts to feed him to Zeus. Zeus sees through this ruse and punishes Lycaon by transforming him and most of his family and followers into wolves, forever cursed to roam the Akkadian wilds. The final key factor the myth brings to the lore of the werewolves is their defiance of the gods. Werewolves, at least while under trial, were considered servants of the devil or blasphemers against God, but we'll get to that more later. Marching northwest out of Greece and slightly backwards in time, we find our story in the ancient lands of Europe, deep in the pre-Christian forests of Germania, in the wild alpine hills, in the plains of Gaul and the mist-covered isles of the north. Many, quote-unquote, pagan cults worship the old gods of the forests and deep magics of the old world. Within these cults, we see a common thread of the wolf being key or at least attached to many rituals, specifically pertaining to the warrior class and imbuing them with the spirit or aspects of the wolf. Now, these practices did not solely include wolves. In fact, most every creature under the sun was used bears, wolves, foxes, hawks, etc. These cults would dominate most of Europe right up until Rome came a-conquering and put a halt to many of their more bloody practices for the sake of being civilized. Rome had a long-established practice called Interpretatio Romana in which the Romans would look at another culture's religion and compare attributes of their gods to find a match to their own. Tacitus claimed that the Germans in a certain region worshipped Mercury, but in reality they worshipped Wotan, or Odin to us modern folk. In spite of this practice, the Romans still had a state-mandated disdain for cannibalism, and many of these ancient pagan rituals did involve the practice of cannibalism, so the Romans tried to put a kibosh on the rituals to varying degrees of success. Skipping over a large chunk of history and jumping forward in time, we find ourselves at the fall of Rome in the West and the dawn of the Middle Ages. With Rome sacked and the empire in ruins, Europe was left in the hands of the barbarian hordes. Not even far off Britannia was safe from the Germanic hordes. The biggest evidence of this is the modern name of Britannia, England, or Angoland, home to the Anglo-Saxons. These invading Germanic peoples brought with them their old beliefs of the man-wolf or men becoming like wolves. Now, it must be stated that at this point, the transformation was not a physical one, but a metaphorical one. Much like the ancient pagan practices mentioned before, this transformation was to obtain the attributes of the animal, rather than become the animal itself. For instance, the speed of the wolf, the cunning of the fox, the strength of the bear, etc. Around this time, the popularity of the tale of Beowulf began to represent a shift in the religious beliefs amongst the Germanic peoples living in Angoland. This was a shift from the worship of the old Earth Mother deity to the worship of Odin. This ties into the werewolf mythos because A. Beowulf and other characters within the tale are described with attributes of wolves and other animals, and B. Odin is heavily associated with wizards and spellbinding, and in particular the binding of the great wolf, Fenrir. 
During the Viking Age, the idea of werewolves became more solidified and began to resemble the traditional transformation into wolves or wolf men that we are familiar with. The beginnings of this is the tradition of the Viking Berserker. A tradition long held by many Celtic groups, the Berserker was a warrior who donned the wolf pelt over his armor and would take upon himself the form of a wolf. These men were often described as their eyes glared as though a flame burned in the sockets. They ground their teeth and frothed at the mouth. They gnawed at their shield rims and are said to have sometimes bitten through them. And as they rushed into conflict, they yelped as dogs or howled as wolves. These berserkers often had to go through initial trials, which involved the hunting of a bear or wolf and the claiming of its body part like a paw or a snout. In addition to this, the berserkers would ingest drugs or drinks which would put them into a frenzied state. Again, this tradition can be traced back to the Celtic berserkers who would ingest woad to induce rage. These hallucinatory drugs and drinks could explain the mindset of the berserker wolfman, envisioning themselves to assume the form of wolves for battle. Alongside the truth of the berserkers comes the tales of the sages. These Viking tales are myths and legends, stories of men and beasts, of gods and heroes. One such tale from the Volsunga Sage tells of two men, Sigmund and, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Sinvigilti. These two men traveled into the forest to prove their strengths and came across a hut with two sleeping wizards. These two men took from the two wizards wolf pelts and put them on. However, when they put on the pelts, they realized they were cursed and were subsequently transformed into bloodthirsty, bestial versions of themselves who sought to kill in order to quench their bloodlust and in hopes of removing the cursed pelts. In the end, Sigmund would kill Sin... Sinvigilt... I'm just going to call him Sin. Would kill Sin and would later be placed under arrest by his sister for his crimes. This pelt-style transformation is an example of the Viking wolfskin belt, which was depicted in artwork and supposedly allowed the wearer to transform into a wolf. Another tale from another sage tells of a man named Ulf, who would turn from mild-mannered man into savage beast at night, and gain the title of the Evening Wolf, possibly originating the transformation by force and, along with another tale of other Evening Wolves, the transformation by night trope associated with the werewolf. Now as time marches on, we enter the age of knights and kings, of castles and crusades, the Middle Ages, and the reign of the church over most of Europe. As the Middle Ages dragged on, the church began to foster a mindset of fear and terror amongst the people and nobles of Europe, a fear of the devil, a fear of hell, a fear of dark magic. During these days when kings waged war and knights rode on horseback, the church needed something to unify all men under the cross. Taking sides in wars between kings proved to be futile, and long past were the days of emperors ruling over the empire of God against the forces of the pagan barbarians. So, the church looked to a less physical battlefield upon which to unite the peoples of Europe. That battlefield was the spiritual battlefield. This war was waged in an effort to bring the poor, illiterate masses to fear the ungodly traditions of the pagans they descended from and embrace the power and protection of the holy light of the church. 
This was achieved by rebranding old myths and legends as tales of monsters and demons, the old gods as devils, heroes as righteous men of God, and so on and so forth, until the shamans and druids of the old religions became worshippers of Satan and witches seeking to corrupt the innocent. Accompanying this shift in thought concerning witches and magic was a shift in how people viewed the mighty werefolk. Long gone were the days of the mighty berserker and the warriors being hailed for their ferocity and animalistic nature. Now the idea of werewolves and folks like them shifted into one of sad, cursed nature. Men were often depicted as trapped in a wolf-like form as the result of dark magic or a spell placed upon them by a woman or angry wife. As time went on, they, along with wolves in general, were considered symbols of greed and gluttony, and men who took their form were seen as men giving in to their sinful lusts. The battle over the image of the werewolf during the Middle Ages was a battle between the old pagan beliefs and the new Christian ones. Initially, the church did not openly identify werewolves as creatures of Satan, but simply as a kind of magic not yet understood, but condemned nonetheless. This was until the age of Augustine and the city of God. In his book, Augustine would explain that the reason for man shifting into the form of an animal was the result of demonic influence. Quote, Demons modify in appearance only those creatures of the true God so that they seem to be what they are not. I, thus, do not admit in any way that demons are capable, by their power or their tricks, to transform, in reality not the soul, but simply the body of a man, into the parts and shapes of a beast. This shift in the belief of the transformation of the werewolf from a voluntary act into a curse placed upon a good Christian man by the devil, or a punishment laid down upon non-believers by God, as was the case of St. Patrick in Ireland, who, through God, placed a punishment of being turned into a wolf upon seven Celts for seven years. Now werewolves were unwitting, cursed individuals, or men tricked by the wiles of women, or the deceptions of the devil, as with the case of Sir Biclaro of Arthurian legend. Sometimes the wolves could be reasoned with, or even converted, as with the case of St. Francis and the wolf of Gubbio. There even at this time rose an idea that men would not so much transform into wolves as unleash his animalistic soul in the form of a wolf, physically separate from his own body, but wholly connected to it in spirit. In the end, however, the werewolf would eventually become fully associated with demonic packs and dark magic. Drawing upon the previously mentioned idea of the dual soul trapped within the man, the church would begin to teach that werewolves were the result of a man giving himself over to the devil who unleashed his dual spirit, allowing him to transform into a wolf, all voluntarily, no longer as a curse. Finally, we enter into the early modern age and the time of witch hunts and witch trials. During this time, the werewolf is almost universally seen as a symbol of evil and of dark magic and the satanic. At this time, if a man was accused of lycanthropy, they were usually also charged with the murder of a child. An example of this would be the trial of Jeanne Gabriot, who was charged with the murder of at least four children and was sentenced to life confined in a friary due to his young age, and would later die there. 
Another case was that of Gilles Garner and his wife, who, according to torture and witness testimonies, kidnapped and consumed multiple children and were thus burnt at the stake. Another case, in 1604, relates that five werewolf sorcerers kidnapped a child and killed him as part of a demonic ritual. All five confessed and were burnt at the stake. These cases show a similarity with standard witch trial practices, as they all involve torture, eyewitness testimony, pacts with the devil, the harming of a child, and burning at the stake if the punishment is death. Otherwise, the accused was placed on a path of attempted rehabilitation. In most, if not all, of these cases, and many more, the werewolves in question were guilty of an actual crime. Though, if you were guilty of just the crime of lycanthropy itself, you could hope to get off pretty lightly. You know, usually only receiving a mild whipping in the public square. An example of this would be probably the only case of a good werewolf, the case of Thesis Caltiburn. Caltiburn was a man who openly professed to being a werewolf, but did so because he wanted to travel to hell and battle the witches as the hound of God. The court trying him found him to be honest and innocent of any other usually associated crimes of werewolves, so they let him off lightly with, as stated previously, a whipping. Thesis aside, all other werewolf trials and cases throughout the 16th century would follow the pattern of an actual crime being committed, like the death of a child, the mauling of a person by a wolf, or damage to property or livestock, followed by an accusation, trial, torture, conviction, and finally, execution, usually burnt at the stake, as was traditional practice with magic users. Though a terror to France, the vast majority of werewolf trials were simply lumped into witch trials which swept across the rest of Europe throughout the 1600s. And just like those same witch trials, they too would die off. The reason for this decline in witch hunts has been the subject of countless books and studies, but to put it as simply as I can, witch hunting died out because the church lost control over Europe. Kings no longer feared the Pope like they used to. Other branches of Christianity presented alternatives to the Catholic Church, and thus weakened its power. And finally, Enlightenment thinking would put an end to the belief in superstition and folklore amongst those who had the power to lead witch hunts and conduct legal trials. In the end, werewolves, much like vampires and witches, would fade into legend and myth, confined to the pages of thrillers and horror novels eventually finding fame and a home on the silver screen and in costume shops and in the minds and nightmares of children. Thank you for listening to the Hiccups in History podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show.